the latest exciting episode of Pulp Today. Pause while I have a sip of wine. I used to drink a little more during these. Mm. I'm more self-conscious about it now that they're audio-only versions. Hi. Uh, today, I want to talk about Richard Condon, largely remembered by people for The Manchurian Candidate, which is a fantastic book and a fantastic it's one fantastic movie and one very not fantastic movie. And, but today I would like to talk about Winter Kills. Winter Kills um, also made into a pretty good movie that may or may not have been suppressed a little bit. My ride is here, as you can tell. I'm not going to stop. I'm going to barrel straight through. Condon was kind of the, you know, one of the great the Shakespeare of conspiracy theory. Um, he wrote great novels about uh, paranoid subjects, and uh, I think he would he he said his favorite topic was the abuse of power, or at least one that he wrote about a lot. Winter Kills is a very thinly fictionalized story that's kind of a what if, which is what if. A member of the squad that killed John F. Kennedy confessed to Teddy Kennedy uh, sometime in the 70s, and how would he deal with learning what he learns about it? Uh, I want to read a couple of passages for it. One is the first I do want to read where the title comes from, which is uh, a lot of authors do this. It's a quote from a fake thing that Condon made up. Minutes trudge, hours run, years fly, decades stun. Spring seduces, summer thrills, autumn sates, winter kills. From the Keener's Manual, which Condon made up, but it's pretty nice. Um, the main character in the book is named Nick. Nick is the youngest son of a powerful rich man named Joe Keegan. He takes his mother's remarried name Thurkild, Thurkild because he has a complicated relationship with his father and with his older brother who has been assassinated. Uh, here's a little bit about the character. Nick Thurkild was a man of moderation in food, drink, and friends. He worked, as much as possible, at hard manual labor that kept him out in the sun. His brown, violet, and white eyes lay like Easter eggs in a basket of squint lines. His body was as dark as a cinnamon stick. He was a blocky, strong-looking man, neither tall nor short. He had blonde hair, and he wished he had the nerve to dye it any dark color. People could spot him too easily. People like Pa, unless he wore a hat. All his physical characteristics separated him still further from Pa and Tim. They were both very tall, red-haired men who walked as though they were trying to hold a bowling ball between their thighs. Pa was covered with freckles, a disgusting thing, and he had the diction of a street urchin. Nick's cinnamon tan made his teeth look neon white. They were exceptionally good teeth, but few people, his dentist, Yvette Malone, and certain members of the Glee Club at Cornell, knew about that because he refused to show them when he smiled. 
When he did smile, he conveyed rue. He was ruining Pa's marble teeth, which looked as if they could have been ripped out of a merry-go-round horse. Pa flashed the teeth on and off as if they were traffic lights, increasing the pace when he was cheating someone, which was most of the time. Tim had been all teeth and hair. Take away everything on Tim's face except those finger-length incisors and that half kilo of hair, and everybody from Pennsylvania Avenue to the high Himalayas could still recognize him. A buffet dinner for 14 could be served on Tim's dinner plate front teeth, but Tim's inner life rarely had any relationship to his toothy smile. He was a politician grinner. Nick told him, I don't know how you and Pa can grin so much. You're both supposed to have a lot on your minds. I mean, they keep saying you're the most powerful man on earth. How can you grin all the time, maybe even when you're asleep, knowing that? Tim answered frankly for once. He said, Toothy smiles are an announcement. They proclaim, Observe my genuine equine boyishness, the charm you just have to trust. My mother met Herman Goering once. She said he was the most charming man she had ever met, Nick said. Most people who trusted that charm got their arms broken. That's what people's arms are for, Tim kidded. But was he kidding? Tim had to be cynical, hard, and shifty because he was a real politician. He had had minimal education and he had never worked for a living. He had worked at getting elected. Nobody was better at that than Tim, unless it was Pa for Tim. I have to say that description of Pa Keegan's teeth considering that John Huston played the role in the movie. Good casting. <laughs> Good casting. What really kicks off the story is a, an employee and friend of Nick's named Kefitz has a, an oil rig worker who falls, injures himself. The injuries are fatal. And when he knows this, he wants Nick Keegan brought to him, Nick Throckeld, brought to him so that he can confess to the murder of his brother, i.e. the assassination of John F. Kennedy. 11.10 p.m., same night, Brunei. There was a parking space in front of the hospital. They waited in the air-conditioned lobby. Enjoy the cool while you can, Kefitz said. The air-conditioning breaks down here every hour on the hour. What are we waiting for? Flusher is going to be able to go through this only once, Kefitz said, so I borrowed a lawyer from Shell to take a deposition. The lawyer brought a stenographer with him. The lawyer's name was Chandler Tate. The stenographer was a Javanese girl named Sis Ryan. Kefitz led them to Fletcher's room. There was a screen around the bed and two chairs on either side of it. Kefitz leaned over and spoke directly into Fletcher's ear. President Keegan's brother is here, Turk, he said. Fletcher opened his eyes, but he didn't look at anybody. We're going to swear you in, Turk, Kefitz said. Sis Ryan moved a Bible under Fletcher's hand on the bed. Tate read the formula to Fletcher from a typewritten slip. Fletcher repeated that what he was about to say was the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help him God. The iodoform smell was sweet and heavy. The flat fluorescent light poured age down on all of them except Sis Ryan. Fletcher's face was as lined as a phonograph record, his voice was a hoarse whisper. State your full name, please. Arthur Turkus Fletcher. Your address, please. Dallas, Texas. How old are you? 58 years. We will hear your testimony now. 
I shot President Keegan. How? Nick asked the question involuntarily. I was second rifle in Hunt Plaza on February 22, 1960. I hit with both shots. His voice had no color because he was saving everything. First rifle missed with his second shot. I fired from the sixth floor of the Engelson building from behind the president's car. Nick corrected Fletcher. You mean you shot from the TV center warehouse, he said. There never was any shot from there, Fletcher whispered, sweating like a mollusk. The people around the bed glistened. Keefit's thousand-mile blue shirt had dark loops under each arm. That room up there was just a decoy. They left the phony rifle there. A mail-order Carcano, for Christ's sake. I couldn't hit you from here with no Carcano. Where was the number one rifle? Keefitz asked. I shot on a line with him, Fletcher said, at a high angle where you gotta watch your azimuth and you gotta figure your lead time with a big guard that's bound to pick up speed after them first two shots. Number one shot from behind the fence with the bushes up front, up on the grassy knoll to the right of the car and a little above. I shot three seconds, about 30 yards, behind him. Tim loomed up in Nick's mind, wearing a dark jacket with a yellow silk lining that had horses printed on it. He could smell the smoke from Tim's Cuban cigar. He could see Tim's eyes mocking him. Tim's eyes could either use you or you were useless. If you were useless, the eyes were indifferent. But if there was something else seen there that could possibly hoist Tim, the eyes sparkled with attention and flattering concern. Fletcher gasped with surprise at the intensity of a serial pain that had just scampered through him. Then he continued to speak slowly, leaning against the ramp of the pain. First shot to the back of his head. Second shot beside the spine, near side. I went into history. The way the fortune teller told my mama I would, two hours before I was born. Keefitz looked at Nick. Nick seemed to be trying to memorize the square inches of Fletcher's face. This man killed Tim, Nick was telling himself incredulously. He could reach out and touch Tim's murderer, but he couldn't see anything evil in the face. Pa had made Tim the president. This man had unmade him. Between the two stood an odd stranger, a shimmering figure of memory in TV newsreels, a zero called the wit and wisdom of President Keegan, teeth. LMA Irving and her orogenic brazier, all that red hair, the man who had stared down the Russian chairman, women, all sizes of women, a rusty-haired man in white pajamas, a head on a celluloid button. Vietnam. This exhausted, dying, staring body on the hospital bed, whose face had less expression than a baseball glove, had exploded all of it, had made the wonk presidential cartoon disappear. It was ridiculous. Fletcher stared upward as though the ceiling were a crowded movie screen that was offering a spectacular starring himself back in the days when he had never bothered to think about dying. Richard Condon, Winter Kills. I won't spoil the ending for you, but it's a pretty clever variation on all of those conspiracy theories about the Kennedy assassination. And it's a Maybe it's almost too obvious. But the film did uh, have a rough go of it at the box office. It got very mixed reviews. But it's really an excellent film, and it's an excellent um, adaptation of the novel, which I highly recommend. Thanks for watching, and I'll see you on the next exciting episode. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com.
Thanks for listening.